0: Please stand for the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. Arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon him he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed.
1: What a song that is. If you were listening to that passage and it sounded familiar, that song, which is Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, resonates throughout the whole Bible. It sounds a lot like the song that David sings at the end of 2 Samuel. It sounds a lot like the song that Mary sings in Luke, the Magnificat. It is a resonant song about God standing up for his people, looking on people that are lowly and oppressed, and raising them up with glory and honor. You know, one of the passages in the Bible I've always loved is in Hebrews 11, which is often called the Hall of Faith. And so after you've made it through 10 chapters of about the most intricate argument in the whole Bible in Hebrews 1 through 10, you get this wonderful passage about the saints of old who followed God and trusted him. And it says at the end, and even though they didn't see all that God promised, now, because of his son, They've gotten their reward. And I love that there's this refrain in Hebrews 11 that says, By faith, Abraham went out when he didn't know where he was going and followed God. And by faith, Noah, when it was totally crazy because there was no rain on the horizon, began building an ark, and he was made fun of, but he trusted God. And by faith, Moses left Egypt. He didn't want to be a prince of Egypt. He wanted to be with God's people, and he chose the mistreatment of Israel over the fleeting pleasures of sin. And it goes on and on and on, honoring these saints of old. And it says, of whom the world was not worthy. And then in chapter 12, the author builds on that story by saying something very interesting. It says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us press on in our faith, putting aside sin that entangles and pursuing the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Now, when I was in high school especially, this passage was always preached like, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, i.e., watching you when you do the wrong thing. You should do the right thing. That's how I first learned this passage. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses who are watching at all times and making sure that you're doing what you should be doing, like they're going to tell God or something on you uh, if you do the wrong thing. That's how I grew up learning this passage was this great cloud of witnesses are witnessing us. And it reminds me of a commercial. It was like a whole series of commercials a few years ago with LeBron James. It was a Nike commercial series. And the theme of the commercial was, we are all witnesses right, to King James, King LeBron James, the greatest basketball player, so they, so they argued. I don't know how that went over for the Jordan brand, but basically it was, we are witnesses to this great talent. And that's how we're tempted to read these passages. When we use the word witnesses, we usually mean we are witnessing something. We are witnessing greatness. They, the cloud of witnesses are witnessing us. But actually, that's not the way the Bible usually uses the word witness, The way that this passage uses witnesses is they are witnesses to us of the faithfulness of God. So we actually look to them as a witness of what happens if you trust God. So we have such a great cloud of witnesses means we have so many examples of what it looks like to leverage everything on God and see him come through. We have a great cloud of witnesses means when you're discouraged, when you feel overlooked, when you feel like God's not listening to you, when you feel like God's plans for you are not coming true, check out this group of witnesses of what God can do with somebody like you. So we are looking at Old Testament saints, and we're looking at witnesses for the next couple months of God's power through ordinary people. So they are witnesses to us that God did it for them, and he can do it. For us, we are surrounded by a great cloud of these witness biographies in the Bible of what God can do through His people. And this morning, I want to hold up what I think is one of the most underrated, underappreciated witnesses in the Old Testament, and her name is Hannah. So, Hannah is one of the characters in the book of 1 Samuel. And you may know that 1 Samuel is named after her son. He's the main character of the first part of 1 Samuel. But I would argue that you won't have Samuel if you didn't have Hannah. And the way the story opens, we get a look at the life of Hannah. And if there's one thing we can take away from her, she is a witness of the power of pouring out your soul to God. That's the most amazing phrase in this, in this passage is in verse 15 of chapter 1 in 1 Samuel. She poured out her soul before the Lord. What does it mean to do that? That's what I want to talk about this morning. So, the first thing is she worshiped God in a terrible time in Israel. She worshiped God when nobody else was worshiping God. So, the book of 1 Samuel actually comes on the heels of the book of Judges. Now, in our Bibles, we have Ruth right between Judges and 1 Samuel, and that's partly because chronologically it fits vaguely within that time period, end of the Judges, beginning of Samuel. But the way the Hebrew people would have read this is right from the end of Judges right into the book of 1 Samuel. And so I want to read you the last line of the book of Judges just to give you a glimpse of what things are like in Israel. So as you know, judges are people like Samson who are not kings, but they've been kind of freeing the Israelites, and there's a thing called the Judges Cycle. Things start out pretty good in the book of Judges. The tribe of Judah's going, and they're taking over the land, and there's a little ominous note in there that says, but they didn't move the people out of the land like God commanded. And what ends up happening is they also didn't move idolatry out of their hearts like God commanded, and before you know it, the Israelites in the promised land look a lot like the people who were in the promised land, worshiping idols, not trusting in God. And by the time you get to the end of Judges, things have deteriorated so far that it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king, no standards. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now this is a pretty bad place for a society to be. Everybody just doing whatever they think is right. But it's really bad when this is the people of God. These are the people who know what they should be doing, and they're not doing it. So when you open the book of 1 Samuel, all of a sudden you realize we're in a culture in decline. We're in a culture of people who are not serving and honoring God. And all of a sudden there's this Family. And we're introduced to Elkanah first, who's Hannah's husband. And Elkanah is a son of Jer- 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 Jeroham and Elihu. He's a priestly family. And he's married to Penina and to Hannah, but Hannah has no children. And in the midst of this, it tells us all they are worshiping God as they've been commanded to at, when nobody else is doing this. And so it's really kind of a startling contrast to say, what does it look like to worship God? when it's not easy to do, it's not popular to do, and nobody else is doing it. That's what this family was about. Now, this family has problems, which we'll talk about in a minute, but they're getting one thing really right. They have committed themselves, no matter what anybody else does, we're going to worship God, and we're going to do it the way that God has said to worship. So the first scene is them going up to the tabernacle, and they're worshiping God by giving a sacrifice. And the contrast here is, They're not well off, they're not notable, they're not in high positions, they're just doing the ordinary stuff that you do when you love God and want to worship Him. I've been reading a book recently, in this last week, by Mark Sayers, and if you haven't come across Mark Sayers, he is one of the sharpest social, political commentators from a Christian standpoint. His bread and butter is, what is going on on a mega social level, and what should we as Christians be doing about it? And so his new book is called A Non-Anxious Presence, which is a whole thing in and of itself. That phrase, I think, is so important. But his point is, we as a culture are entering what he calls a gray zone. And a gray zone is not quite the end of something and not quite the total beginning of something, but that that phase in a culture where everybody is unsure about almost everything. That's a gray zone. It's like when, you, when, when your feet are not quite set and you try to lift something, your strength is completely gone. And what happens in a gray zone is everybody's a little bit uncertain about everything. And so his, his question that he asked through the book is, how do you live as a Christian in a gray zone? How do you live as a Christian when it's actually not quite as popular as it used to be to believe what Christians believe? And it's actually not quite as popular even to do the things that Christians do in our culture And it's not that it's bad, but it's not quite good. It's just indifferent. It's just gray. It's just confusing. It's a time of anxiety. And one of the things that he says in the book is, the most important thing you can do is make sure that your worship of God is certain. One of the staples in your life and one of the staples in your family's life, we will worship the Lord. Come gray zone or whatever, we'll worship God. That's a point of stability for us. It reminds me of probably the most famous passage about this that probably came to many people's mind. At the end of Joshua, you've seen this in homes all over the place. Joshua 24, 15, he stands up before the people of Israel, and he says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So there's a lot of options out there, but we will serve the Lord. Now what's interesting about this passage is this is Joshua's farewell address. This is his farewell address. He is old at this point, and his life has been a model of what it looks like to follow and worship God. You know, the first time we ever learn anything about Joshua is when Moses sends 12 spies into the Holy Land. And so he takes one from every tribe, and he sends them into the Holy Land, and he says, give me a report of what the land looks like. And the spies come back, and they report that the land looks great, but the people are way too powerful for them to move in. And so there's two spies, Caleb, who we'll talk about Memorial Day weekend, and Joshua, who say, our God can lead us to victory in the promised land. And all the other 10 guys are like, no, I don't think so. I don't, I'm not, we're not doing it. And they don't, and they wander for 40 years because they didn't worship God. They were threatened by earthly power, military power, economic power that they didn't have. So the first thing we know about Joshua is he's somebody that when regardless of how popular it was, regardless of what the odds were, regardless of the outcome, he was going to worship God. And now, at the end of his life, he's the leader of Israel. He's Moses' successor, and he's led the people through the promised land. And he stands up and says, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want to leave you with. You've got a choice. You and your families can do what's popular right now. He says, you can worship the gods that are here in this land. The people that we are around, the Amorites, worship other gods. And you can join them, and it will be easy. Or you can worship God. And as for me and my household, we will worship the Lord. Now, the question I ask when I read this, though, is how does he know that's going to happen? He's about to die. Actually, the first thing we find out after this is Joshua dies. How is he so confident that his family afterwards is going to worship the Lord? Because one of the things about Joshua is he has left a legacy in his family of doing this very thing. From the time his kids were little, and now his grandkids were little, they're grown, they have worshipped God together in their family. It's the whole trajectory of their family's life. And that doesn't mean that Joshua had a perfect family. We don't know about all of Joshua's descendants, but if you looked at Joshua's family, the pattern for them, the standard, what they did was worship God together. And so at the end of his life, he could stand up and say, I'm confident that just as we have for the last generation, we will continue to worship God Together, Now, I started out in ministry in youth ministry. It only lasted a year, and then I moved to college ministry, which resonated a lot more with me. And what I got to see in youth ministry and college ministry was how big a difference your family life makes in the spiritual life of your kids. And one of the polls that I read, one of the Barna studies that I read that made such a difference when I was a youth pastor is that every kid, in addition to their parents, and parents, you are the most important voice in your kid's life, whether you feel like it or not, whether they get to be teenagers and you think you're the least important voice in their life, you are the most important voice in their life. And in addition to you, they need, or they're going to have five important voices in their life. They will have five important voices. And if you look at those voices and you just take the top five important voices outside of you, you can almost guarantee what their life is gonna look like. So one of the reasons we do this baby dedication and we actually have congregational involvement is some of those five voices in our kids' lives are sitting here in this room. Some of the people that we want to have the biggest impact on our kids are in this room, part of the church. They're setting a standard of worship in their own family. Five important, meaningful voices will determine what your kids believe and what they see modeled and what they look up to and who their heroes are. And Joshua is saying, our house, we're going to be meaningful voices for worshiping God. And that's what Hannah does as well. Elkanah and Hannah and Penina, they go up together and they say, we're going to worship God no matter what else is going on in our lives. Now, this sounds great on paper, They're worshiping. They're awesome. Aren't they wonderful people? But they got big problems at home in Hannah's household. So the other thing we find out about them is Elkanah marries Hannah, and she is barren. So what he does, and again, this is a whole different sermon for a whole different time, is he takes another wife, Penina. Can you imagine the problems they had at home? I mean... Then she chides Hannah for not being able to have kids. So this whole context is they go up, and when you offered a sacrifice at the tabernacle, what you would do is you would go up and you would offer some kind of animal as a sacrifice, and then you would get back some of the meat to have a meal together as a family. Well, as you might have predicted, they go up, they offer the sacrifice, and things do not go well afterwards. So as a family, (laughs) they're going up, and Penina is teasing Hannah, And she's so upset that she's not able to eat. Look at what it says in verse 7. So this went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Penina used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah uh, wept and could not eat and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, listen to this, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? This isn't Father's Day, but I'll just... Here's some advice. This is not what you say. This is, this is not what you say. I mean, can you imagine? You've got me. Why could you, how could you be upset? I mean, this is like, you understand why they got problems at home when you read this. Elkanah does not understand why she's upset. He doesn't understand the tensions. She's unheard. She's unappreciated. She's unfulfilled. She's upset. And so what does she do? This is the main point of the story. In the midst of that, what does she do? She pours her heart out to the Lord. This is why Hannah is a hero. It's not because of what happens to her with Samuel, which we'll talk about in a minute. She does end up having a child, but that's not what makes her a hero. It's not because she just perseveres and grits her teeth and does a great job and honors God outwardly and inwardly she's being destroyed. No, the reason that she is a hero is in the midst of her disappointment and disillusionment and frustration, she channels that and takes it to God. That's what's so remarkable about Hannah. Hannah. It says that she's pouring out her soul to the Lord. And she is really distressed because Eli, who is the high priest at this point, watches her and she's praying so fervently, he thinks she's drunk. And he approaches her about it. Again, this is like so good for men on what you shouldn't do in a story. So Eli looks at her, he says, how long will you go on being drunk? (laughs) This is just, put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul to the Lord. I've been pouring out my soul to the Lord. One of the things that we see in Hannah is that God sees people who are in this moment. In fact, when we read that song that she sings to the Lord in chapter 2, it's all about God being a fortune reverser. He is the person who shakes things up. He's the person who sees specifically the downcast and the oppressed and the people that have nobody to stand up for them. So like Hannah, God looks to the people who have nobody else who can do what God can do for them. And she goes to God, she knows that, and she begins to bring her requests to him. One of the stories that really resonated in my heart this week as I was thinking about this topic is when Jesus walks on the water to meet the disciples. So if you remember this, this is in Matthew chapter 14, and Jesus has been teaching the crowds Constantly, and he wants some time away. So, what he does is he puts the disciples on a boat and he sends them across the Sea of Galilee and he goes up to a mountain by himself to pray. And as he's up there, it says in the middle of the night, he's praying and he looks down. And this is really cool when you go there. There's a peak that is right over the Sea of Galilee, and it's almost like the lookout up here where you can look out and see what's going on on the water. And Jesus is up there praying and he can see that their boat. Is getting tossed all over the place. It's not making any progress. And these are professional fishermen. And they're making no progress. And so Jesus looks down on them, has compassion on them. And what does he do? This is interesting. All throughout this story, we know that Jesus can calm the storm. He's already done it. He can do it with a word. But he doesn't calm the storm. He goes down the mountain. I think he levitates, but that's not in the text. I think he goes straight down towards the water. And he walks across the water in the midst of the storm. And then he gets to the boat and they are freaking out and they look over and they see that it's Jesus and he doesn't calm the storm. He Peter says if it's you command me to come out to you on the waves. And so he does. Peter gets out of the boat, starts walking towards Jesus in the midst of this storm, and do you remember what happens? Peter's doing great when he's looking at Jesus. And then all of a sudden he looks down at the waves and sinks. And, and Jesus rescues him. He says, you have little faith. And the, the storm still doesn't get calmed. They don't actually calm the storm until they get off the boat on the other side of the sea. This is so significant. What Jesus tends to do is not look at you, see that some things are going wrong in your life, and immediately fix all your problems. That, I don't know why he doesn't do it that way, but that is not the way he does things. He often does things this way. In the storm that you're in, He prefers to come be with you instead of calming the storm. That's just his way. That's the way he does things is he would rather be with you than be apart from you and put you in a better situation. And that's so insightful for us that it's actually better to be with God and to be with Christ, have his spirit working in us when we're suffering than it is to not be suffering but not have God. That's the logic of the Bible. It's not the way we tend to think about things. But he would prefer to come down from the mountain, walk out there, be with us, get us out of the boat, walking on the waves, being with him, as opposed to calming the storm, which he could do with a word. So what do we take from that? Well, one of the things we take is when you're in a storm, you should be looking first and foremost for him walking to you on the waves. That's what we should look for first and foremost. And I'm not saying we don't pray for him to calm the waves, because he does that other places. But in his wisdom, he knows the right time to come to us, to calm the storm, to be with us, to walk with us through the whole thing. One of the commentators on the Psalms that I love, his name is Derek Kidner, and he said this. He says, God's way, if you look at the scriptures, God's way is not always to stop the fight, but it is always to stand by the fighter. That's God's way, not to stop the fight, but to stand by the fighter, To be kept from evil doesn't imply a cushioned life, he says, but it does imply a well-armed one. Listen to that. To be kept from evil, which we pray in the Lord's Prayer, we pray in the Psalms, Lord, keep us from evil, keep us from things happening, it doesn't mean a cushioned life. It means a well-armed life, armed with the fruits of the Spirit, armed with the presence of God, armed with the Holy Spirit, reminding us of who we are, reminding us of who God is, reminding us of what he's told us. That's... Life kept from evil. So the faith and the resilience of Hannah is going to God in the midst of the storm. Now it just so turns out for Hannah that He actually does calm the storm in this situation. But the first thing that He does is draw near to her. It made me wonder that, you know, Hannah knew that God had something for her in the midst of her trial. Whereas a lot of times our prayers are just get me out of this trial. Just fix whatever's going on. But Hannah had the insight. This is why she's a hero. She had the insight to say, maybe God has something for me here that I can't get anywhere else. Maybe God in his wisdom and in his goodness has put me where I am now because he has something for me that he's not gonna give me anywhere else. Maybe we should memorize more verses like Psalm one eighteen six. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or I think about Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or I think of the time when Jacob is wrestling with God and Jacob doesn't just say, stop wrestling. Jacob says, I won't let go until you bless me. How different would our lives be if we had this mindset of we're praying for God to change things, but we're not gonna let go of praying until he blesses us. We're not gonna let go until we figure out why it is that God brought us here What he's doing, how he's present, how he's walking with us, and then we'll see what he does next. And that's what happens to Hannah. Her life is really in a bad place, but she pours her heart out to God. Now this story ends up really good for Hannah. She she cries out to God and Eli for all of his faults. Says God is going to answer your prayer. God is going to answer your prayer. He's going to give you a son. And sure enough, God does. The Lord remembers her, it says, and she bore a son and she named him Samuel because she said, I have asked from the Lord and he has given. So Samuel is born and, and you know Samuel is one of the great characters of the Old Testament. He's the one that anoints Saul, the first king of Israel. He's the one that anoints David. He's the one that is the final judge before the period of the kings. He is righteous, he is honorable, he, he pushes the people towards God and he had a godly mother and he himself was a gift from the Lord. I just love, this is not in our text today, but I just love this passage. If you flip over to chapter 2, afterwards what she does is she gives Samuel to the Lord, and he serves in the tabernacle with Eli. And this is the story where God calls out to him and says, Samuel, and he goes to Eli. And he's like, did you call me? He's like, no. So he goes back and lays down. And he's saying, Samuel, Samuel. And he goes to Eli. He's like, are you calling me? He says, no. And finally on the third try, Eli realizes, maybe it's God. Maybe you should just say, I'm listening. Okay, So he's there serving with Eli, and in verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, Samuel is ministering before the Lord, and a, boy, uh, a little boy clothed with a linen ephod. An ephod is like a little dress almost. It's just what they would wear as an undergarment under their priestly robes. And he's wearing a little linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer their yearly sacrifices. Even after she gives Samuel to the Lord... She continues to worship, to walk with God, to bring that little linen ephod every year because he's growing fast. He's a little boy. And and so she's bringing a new ephod each year to measure, and she has given everything she had back to the Lord. And this is the last thing I want to point out about Hannah. She gave back to the giver. She gave back to the giver. When God answers her prayer, she worships. She continues worshiping. She, she sings this wonderful song, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my salvation. And she continues to say, the Lord makes the poor and makes the rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherits a seat of honor, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. She's rejoicing in the Lord because he's the God of reversals. He's the God that turns things upside down. And here's what's so amazing about her is oftentimes on Mother's Day, I've talked to many women who feel like on Mother's Day, if you preach something like Proverbs 31, for example, you hold up this absolutely perfect woman and it's like, we should all measure up to that. you know? Okay, so you leave feeling horrible um, because nobody can measure up to, to Proverbs 31. But what happens is we hold up these characters and we say, look at how perfect they are. Look at how amazing they are. The point of Hannah's story is she's not perfect. She's not perfect, but she's devoted. She, her family is in a really bad situation, but she continues to worship. And here's another thing. She gets what she always wanted and continues to worship God. Here's the problem when God just takes away every burden, every hardship, everything we struggle through. When he does that, We don't turn to him. It's like a lot of times if our prayers were answered, we wouldn't need God anymore. It's like we pray in such a way that, God, what I really want is to not be dependent on you. And what Hannah proves is she was so devoted to God during the trial that when God did calm the storm, he did give her a son, what'd she do? She continued to follow God. And that's how God was molding her and shaping her. The great miracle of this story is not just that she had a child. The great miracle of the story is God gave her her heart's desire and her greatest desire was still to be with him. That's what it looks like to follow him, is that if he would give you all the desires of your heart, he would still be the greatest desire. And that's a prayer that he always answers. Now, we do hope that God answers prayer like, Hannah prayed, give me a son. We do hope that he calms the storm. But more than anything else, we hope that he will be with us, and he's promised that more than any other promise in the Bible. I will be with you, no matter what. I think I'll end on this. I think of Psalm 139, where the psalmist is saying, where could I possibly go away from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I take up the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even though even there your hand is with me. If I make my bed in shale, you're there. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, the light about me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. He comes walking on the sea. The miracle of Hannah's life is that she followed God where she found herself. She worshiped God when it was unpopular. She asked God for her heart's desire, and God gave her himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that on this day where we celebrate mothers, we celebrate families. You designed families. And you knew that deep inside of us We would need other people who love us, encourage us, raise us. Lord, you've made humanity in such an interesting way where every person who has ever lived has a mother. And Father, we even address you in familial terms. You are our Father. You love us. Lord, you promise that even for those who don't have a family, the Lord, you will take them in. So, Father, we praise you this morning to be a part of the family of God. In a family where we know you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, you will walk with us, you will be with us, you will carry us, just like you carried Hannah. Father, I pray that her witness would be an encouragement, a reminder to us that we can trust you. Wherever we find ourselves, Lord, we can be with you. We can lift up our cares to you. And Father, we know that you will never leave us or forsake us. We offer these prayers in the name of your Son who gave himself for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.